Thanks for tuning in to Dementia Dialogue and our episode on the experience of care partners during COVID-19. Our guests today are Claire Webster, who was a care partner for her mother for many years. Subsequently, Claire has become a dementia care consultant and operates Caregiver Crosswalks Incorporated in Montreal. She has also initiated McGill Cares, an educational resource for families affected by dementia and for medical students at McGill. Megan O'Connell is a professor and clinical psychologist at the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. O'Connell is also lead of Team 15 of the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration and Aging. Let's listen in to our conversation. Thank you for having me uh, on your show. Um, so I'm Claire Webster and um, I came into the space of dementia care education because of my own personal experience as a former caregiver to my late mother who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in September of 2006. I had absolutely positively no prior knowledge about the illness, um, signs and symptoms, you know, and, um, you know, I think one of my biggest challenges at the time too was, I mean, with my mother, she was showing like a, re a real significant change in terms of her behavior. It wasn't really memory, it was a behavior. So one of my challenges, which I know a lot of families face is that I didn't even know what type of doctor to take her to see. Was I supposed to take her to a family doctor or was it a psychologist? First of all, I, again, I, you know, I went to see a family doctor and then we went to see a, a neurologist. I was not prepared at all for the appointment. I was not, I had no idea what to expect. And basically upon diagnosing her, um, the only, what I would call today, the only prescription of care or lack thereof was good luck, Mrs. Webster. I ended up going through what I call a cyclone of caregiving, um, you know, and the lack of information and education without a doubt um, led to, you know, I would say that if I would have been properly educated, my mother would have had a better quality of care. Um, I ended up suffering a very, very severe uh, nervous breakdown in 2011. Upon my healing, I decided to get on my own personal crusade and change the healthcare system. I was so frustrated at the lack of information education provided. I became a certified dementia care consultant. So I work with families on a one-to-one -one basis and educating them. And I'm the founder of McGill University's Dementia Education Program. And uh, we educate family caregivers and medical students at the university. And Megan, how about yourself? What brings you to the table on our topic? Well, I research dementia um, and dementia care, but part of the reason I do that is I also have a lived experience as a family caregiver. Um, first for my grandfather um, and saw how the delays and diagnosis really impacted him. So you'll notice a lot of the work I do is in the diagnostic sphere, um, but also the, the post-diagnostic supports. It's another area where I, I do some research as well. And so, so I'm a professor of psychology. I'm a clinical psychologist with specialty training in clinical neuropsychology, which is the part I use for the uh, helping to diagnose dementia. I specialize in measuring cognition and aspects of thinking. And, and I use those skills when I work in uh, our rural and remote memory clinic where we do interprofessional contacts, we diagnose dementia. But in addition to that, as um, 
as my part as co-lead of uh, the rural team in the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration and Aging, I focus on using our knowledge about management and, and, and other types of non-pharmacological interventions, namely psychological interventions, to provide post-diagnostic supports across the province of Saskatchewan, at least that's what we're starting or in the process of starting for various parts of that project. And what, because we are focusing on rural dementia care, we use technology to remotely provide these services. And um, the pandemic has really highlighted the need for remote service delivery and the utility of remote service delivery and uh, where it's quite feasible and quite acceptable for many people. There's actually been um, a lot of advantages, like for instance, the Zoom platform, you know, first of all, I would say in my in my private practice, uh, you know, in, in, in working with families, I've never done so many family um, consultations right now because prior to COVID, I would normally meet just one or two family members at one time because it was, you know, the norm was that other siblings would live, you know, outside of the country, outside of the province. But because of Zoom, I'm doing a lot of family consultations. It doesn't matter where people are located across the world, so that people could come together. We can they can all be educated and talk uh, on the you know and be on the same page. So that has been a, an advantage, and I think also with regards to caregivers, you know, uh, McGill Cares. I, I started it in May of 2020 because we weren't able to have caregivers come into the university in the workshops. But if anything, we've never reached so many. We've never been able to educate and support so many caregivers. Both of you have been involved with the Alzheimer's Society in doing some early work on how to support people given the isolation, the veil that came down and uh, limited people from having access to services, having access to each other, having access to groups like the, uh, the support groups of the Alzheimer's Society. I'm wondering, uh, given your early conversations and concerns in this area, I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about how things have played out in terms of what you perceived as issues that would probably emerge and have those issues emerged? And if so, you know, what are some of the most pressing experiences of care partners in particular? Sure. Megan, do you want to start? <laughs> okay, sure. Because I was like, I have, I have gonna... a long list. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we definitely, because uh, we were both on the Alzheimer's Society COVID task force focusing on, on caregivers' experiences, the absolute cessation of complete no access to supports and services was profoundly distressing and I, I think still is and, and Claire I think has can talk to that even more so because um, of her work um, but we we did an early project looking at a scoping review of what these kind of uh, experiences are and the impacts this had on caregivers early in the pandemic we also had a, a nice uh, analysis of tw people tweeting about their experiences this is a new world and some people use social media the other uh, as a researcher the practical aspect to that was being able to quickly do it without needing to go through and because it's public data we don't have to go through ethics that can take months so we were able to really describe the impacts of the complete loss of any supports and services on caregivers 
Um, and then for those who are living with dementia and living either in a care facility or alone, the, the impact of that complete loss of socialization, stimulation and, and affection and, and access to their loved ones and for some of them, they didn't understand why. So this could have profound impacts on them psychologically. And we saw some descriptions of that. And also some descriptions, both in the literature, in our, you know, infodemic study or the Twitter study, and also my clinical work of exacerbation of problems and cognitive and, and psychiatric con um, concerns uh, due to this complete loss of any activities or uh, stimulation socialization is one of the most important things that we do for our mental health, our cognitive health, and to have that completely gone was pretty profound. One of the things that our team did really early on is, is trying to help all the services get back online, and I mean online on this platform. Um, so we bought Zoom Healthcare, we provided an account to the Alzheimer's Society of Saskatchewan, so they were able to maintain their support groups, although I recognize they did have a few months where they closed it down. They were able to get up and running and, and give their support groups through this, this secure um, platform. And our team used our skills in training people with cognitive challenges or cognitive impairments to learn new skills, to use the telephone to train people who've never used Zoom how to get on Zoom. So we spent the whole summer <laughs> using the telephone and training and supporting people to get on and use the technology that they had in different ways to maintain those social connections, to maintain their access to the remote services and, uh, that were being offered by the Alzheimer's Society of Saskatchewan, for instance. They moved all of their programming online through video conferencing. So we did a lot of that as well as a method to help people. Because although, I mean, we figured this out, it's, I don't know about you guys, but I tell you at the beginning, even just doing Zoom and using Zoom, that was a really big challenge. And now you add to that your day-to-day -day caregiving challenges and or your own cognitive impairment. You can imagine that just giving people the link to Zoom is not adequate. So we spent a lot of time doing that. Yeah, coaching people. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Claire, what are your, how have things played out in your experience? It's been extremely challenging. I mean, so let's, let's take a step back. And as I had mentioned with my own story, I mean, before COVID, families receiving a diagnosis, should they be lucky enough to get a diagnosis, were not provided, the majority are not provided with any information or education, not only about the disease itself, but then also about how do you access resources from the community? So then let's add COVID into that mix. And here you have all of these families caring for a loved one at home who has dementia without understanding why they're doing what they're doing, okay? And so, you know, and now you add isolation to that. So why are they repeating themselves? Why, it, why is all this challenging behavior coming along? So they don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. Then for those of people, for instance, who were getting some type of home care support when COVID happened, the majority of people that I'm working with stopped that, whether it was public support or even private support, because people were afraid of COVID. They were told, don't let anybody into your home. If any home care support worker is seeing other families, don't let them in. So then what out, the other thing that is happening is for those caregivers who have a loved one who is, whose dementia was advancing, where it was impacting their activities of daily living, meaning the dressing, the bathing, the toileting, all of a sudden the spouses or children had to start assuming these very intimate role that they may have not done before, which was very difficult to do, to come to that realization that they have to do that. And so as a result of that, 
you know, we're adding a tremendous allow, a, a layer of stress onto the, onto the care partner. They're feeling isolated. But, you know, like, like Megan mentioned, you know, for those uh, people with dementia who were getting some type of, you know, day center activities, that had all stopped. So now you have people living at home 24 hours, seven days a week. There's nowhere to put their, their anger or, or their frustration except on themselves. Symptoms of dementia began increasing, but so did the coping mechanisms of not only the caregivers, but also the person with dementia. So people started drinking earlier or you know, other coping mechanisms could be drugs, could be food, could be shopping online, et cetera. And what I've seen a lot is that these care partners feel like there's a lot of suffering and silence. So these feel this feeling of anger or sadness or burden, they feel like I'm alone. Like, is it, is it me? I'm alone and no one to talk to. And that's been coming out, I have to say a lot, is that this feeling of, of really suffering and silence. And so what I'm trying to do is, you know, just let everybody know you're not alone in the lack you know, access to the healthcare. So then there are all these families for instance, where their loved one is showing the early signs and symptoms of the illness, and people are, don't even know what the early signs and symptoms are, because there is currently no public awareness campaign about it. So then it's like that question of, okay, who do I go see? I'm afraid to go take them to the doctor, or they were told, well, their doctor is not seeing people by telemedicine, but it's like, who do I see? And then try to get on a waiting list or referral to see a geriatrician in many provinces. It could take months and months. It's so complex, but when you're dealing with a disease like dementia, you absolutely have to have an assessment. Now, Megan, this is going back to some of your work in technology. This has been some of your work as to how to use technology to overcome uh, this challenge of assessment. Could you talk a little bit about the progress that you've made in that regard? Yeah, so one of the projects we'd actually got funded before the pandemic <laughs> was to um, use the telephone as the technology for accessing rural and remote and any urban people who needed um, access to diagnostic services and then using a telephone based cognitive assessment and a collaborative kind of diagnostic model. So that's one model that um, happened to be funded before the pandemic and uh, fortuitously was able to continue during the pandemic. Um, the other thing, though, that we also did was we moved our interprofessional rural and remote memory clinic, which normally people travel into our center, our urban center in the province and get an in-person assessment and then get a diagnosis by the end of the day. They see multiple specialists. We moved that to Zoom Healthcare as well. And we were able to, as much as possible, mimic the interprofessional nature of our assessment and do some remote cognitive testing and then also provide a diagnosis diagnosis. And I'm not going to lie, it wasn't quite the same quality. I think any of us who were working in the diagnostic context in this in the pandemic have have definitely seen the limitations for some cases, but for some people, it made great sense. And, and we felt very confident that we had a good picture and, and our diagnosis, we, we felt much more comfortable about. So I think there's a lot to be learned from that, because there are sometimes 
where that is likely all that's needed. It really reduces the travel burden. It reduces barriers to diagnosis for those who can't travel in or who don't want to travel in. And also sometimes they don't want to see or the, their rural or their primary care provider doesn't want to do that diagnosis because it has implications for things that can impact their relationship, like informing about driving and, and concerns about that, for yes. instance. Yes. Claire, what is your experience of the how families overcame this hurdle of access to primary care during the COVID period and then getting to uh, some kind of specialist assessment? Was it just there? It was just a barrier that was insurmountable? It's a challenge. I mean, you know, I, I know that, for instance, well, with the, like the Alzheimer plan in Quebec, they're trying to now you know, really encourage family doctors, give more power to the family doctors so that they will be able to make the assessments, you know, so kind of like avoid not having to always refer to geriatricians and neurologists. But what we do know is that unfortunately, depending on, you know, the family doctor, the age of the family doctor, what type of training had he received or she received at the university level, you know, a lot of the, the, the family members that I'm working with have family doctors who clearly have not been able to make proper assessments over the last few years. And I end up being the one to insist to this family to get, try to get the referral to the geriatrician or neurologist. You know, um, there's also, you know, I mean, Alzheimer's Society of Canada has this first link program across the country. Quebec is supposed to be rolling it out this summer. Um, but it, it, I have to say it's a big challenge. Um, and, and I think most importantly, again, it's the fact that the majority of people don't know how to navigate the healthcare system itself. So, you know, even if they do have a geriatrician, for example, they don't necessarily know that, oh, make sure to get that assessment because in order to get a social worker opening a file for you, you need that assessment. So, you know, what is what is the role of the public healthcare system? What is, how do I, if, if, if need be, you know, and, and there, it comes time to having to make a transition to long-term care, you know, they don't realize that the waiting list is two to three years and you need to start making those plans ahead of time. There are so many roadblocks and I just, I really feel that it comes down to a lack of, you know, information and education for the public to really know how to access, you know, whether it's healthcare or the public healthcare system itself um, when, when, when they need it. When one looks at the policy preparation as the story of COVID was unfolding, it's almost as if these populations were, they're an afterthought. You know, we started preparing for the impact of COVID on people with dementia, sometimes in mid-April, you know, when the, the virus was already, you know, doing a lot of damage. I'm wondering if, you know, what your kind of reaction is to those comments about the lack of preparation at a policy level, the fact that people might have been overlooked. Did people, in your conversations with people, did they feel as if they had been abandoned by society in a sense? I mean, I'm, I'm focusing completely on, you know, on, on the dementia care, um, in the field of dementia care. And, you know, we saw that in, in the long-term care facilities, the majority of seniors who died had dementia. You know, very sadly, this is a population that cannot represent themselves, advocate for themselves, communicate. So, you know, I think that what what COVID has shown is for sure this is an incredibly vulnerable 
population just because they cannot advocate for themselves. So if it's a senior who has dementia living alone, who's advocating for them? And, you know, the conversations that I'm having, you know, with right now with, with, with family members who are living abroad. So, if, you know, the sons and daughters that are not in, living in the same city or province or country as their parent is, for me, what, I, I, what we've learned also from COVID is who is advocating for your loved one? You have to have an advocate. So if a family member is not there and not living town, but who, who can be there for them? You, you know, somebody has to be there, has to be their voice, has to look out for their, for their well-being. Um, I, and, I, and I really think more than ever, you know, like, you know, and, you know, you can go into life having a plan A and, and this is the way things are going to go. But what COVID has showed us is that you have to have a plan B at all times. There's got to be a plan B moving forward. Megan, your thoughts in terms of kind of, you know, preparation or, you know, how we uh, approached uh, the, these populations of people in the early stages of COVID and how things have unfolded. Yeah, I think it was really telling for me when we got together on that COVID task force. Um, for instance, Claire's in, in Quebec and I'm in Saskatchewan, how different um, jurisdictions, for instance, the Alzheimer's societies handled this. Saskatchewan went online pretty quickly, resumed services pretty quickly and had a 1-800 toll-free number to call in case of, of um, for support. Not 24-7, but still nevertheless something. Um, I think it really highlighted the disparities in in even the, the Alzheimer's societies and the need for something more central, cohesive, and combined so that it can it can adjust quickly and pivot fairly quickly. For an example would be as simple as what they have in the United States, which is a 24-7 crisis line for people living with dementia and their caregivers. And, and this is one of the things that our little subgroup spend a lot of time thinking about and advocating for, because that could have been very agile to the pandemic and could have been a major source of support. And the second thing that was really highlighted, and that you said it nicely at the beginning too, but is the lack of respect for the human rights of those living with dementia and their caregivers. It was, it was considered secondary. Um, and infection control procedures were primary, which I, I understand in the context of the pandemic, but human rights seem to really get lost. And we saw that particularly and acutely in long-term care and, and in, in multiple, multiple ways. Um, the Twitter study that I talked about where we describe people's reports of their experiences and loved ones who just kind of stopped eating because they, nobody was visiting them you know, I would just like to add, sorry, I would just like to add to what Megan says, you know, this, what happened in the long-term care centers, I mean, everybody heard what happened in Quebec, but, you know, preserving human rights and human dignity of people with dementia, that has been an issue for so long. And, you know, I think the pandemic just opened up the Pandora's box that exposed it all because, you know, my mother was in both the private healthcare system and private residences, as well as the public. And if I wasn't there, like watching over you know, especially during mealtime, I mean, who was feeding her when she wasn't able to feed herself, you know, and just the right to be able to, ha to have a meal and to eat was something that unless I was there or having to hire extra care to have somebody assist her to eat, who was helping them, who was changing them when they were wet. And so, you know, sadly, I mean, it all came full frontal when the pandemic hit, but this has been going on for such a long time and, and, and hopefully things will change. 
think, you know, when you're caring for a loved one with dementia, the role of advocate really comes into play as soon as a person loses their ability to communicate and really understand what is going on. And, you know, my, I, I had to advocate so that I wanted, I ensured that my mother was happy, that she was safe and that she was clean. And when I was managing her care for the final five years of her life, every single decision that I did, every contact that I had with the healthcare system, everything that I did as her daughter, as her caregiver, which just understanding the fact that I was a caregiver was a whole new identity, um, was all about being her advocate. And it, it meant that when I was face-to-face -face or on the phone with anybody from the healthcare system or with the residences or with the home care agencies, I wanted to ensure that they were going to show up, that they were there. And, you know, I have a lot of family members who say to me, well, I called and I haven't heard back for weeks and all that. Being an advocate means that it's your responsibility to call. You need to call. You need to follow up. It's those people that are going to take, like, take the, the action. Like, you just can't wait at home and wait for your phone. So being an advocate means that you are the one following up, Okay. What's important to know too is like that the people that do that work in the healthcare system are under a tremendous amount of pressure, tremendous amount of stress. You know, they clearly have not received the training that they deserve to care for this population. So when you do approach them, you know, be respectful and be polite because getting frustrated and screaming and yelling isn't going to change things, right? But but being an advocate is probably the most important role that a caregiver is going to have for the final years of a loved one's life. It truly is. Megan, your thoughts? To me, it's a sign of a failure of our healthcare system, really, that you're quite right. Families and people living with uh, dementia need to even advocate to get a diagnosis. You know, you need to advocate to get someone to hear that there are concerns. You need to advocate that you need to, to get certain services and supports. And, and the caregivers who are more successful are the ones who are able to do this and know the system. The ones who don't are the ones that are falling through the cracks. And, and to me, it's a sign that the healthcare system's underfunded, and I guess that's a pretty obvious statement, but it's underfunded for dementia care particularly. I think the fact that families have to fill in those gaps and in including in advocacy and including in a lot of the care needs, even when you are receiving formal care, just speaks to the fact that we need much more funding. We need much more funding focused on dementia care, whether it be post-diagnostic or pre-diagnostic. Okay, well, thanks very much. Um, it's been a dynamic uh, conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. It's There's so many issues and the sadness, the great sadness that has pervaded over the last many months. Um, so thank you. Thanks very much, Claire, for your work and thank you. Uh, the, the leadership that you're providing in Quebec and in Montreal. And Megan, I'm very intrigued and I'll be uh, interested in following your research work. And Saskatchewan is a very, it, I get a very nice feeling uh, about the uh, collaboration that's going on there and the advances that are being made. Thank you. And thank you. Our note today for this episode contains links to recent research conducted by Dr. O'Connell and Ms. Webster, including a paper they co-authored with other members of the Task Force of the Alzheimer's Society on COVID-19. There are also links to Claire's service and to the McGill Cares program. Please join us for our next episode 
the last in our series on spirituality. This episode features a discussion with two caregivers about how spirituality has been a valuable resource in their life. A second episode on COVID will be released later in July. Let us know what you think, share your ideas for new topics, or just give us some of your advice. Write to us at Dementia Dialogue at lakeheadu.ca. Thanks to the Centre for Education and Research on Aging and Health for its support and to the Public Health Agency of Canada. My name is David Harvey.